It's Thursday, August 6th, 2015. Yeah, I got that one right. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So there's a new study out. It is called Inequality in 700 Popular Films. It's done by the Media Diversity and Social Change Initiative at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. I think there are 18 words in that title. And anyway, it looked at who's in your movies. Not a huge shock. It's men. It's white men. So... Here's a finding 73.1% of the speaking or named characters in the top 100 movies were white. Now, the population of the United States is 63% white, so that's not so far out of whack. But look at the gender disparity. So they looked at movies from 2007 through 2014 and found that only 32.2% of all speaking or named characters in the 100 top grossing films during that period were women. And so that's bad. We know that's bad. But then I got to thinking about it. You know, anytime you have a survey that points to problems, societal problems is reflected in film. But where the film My Dinner with Andre hurts the overall statistics, makes you think things are really bad with movies. Whereas the film BAPS, the Halle Berry vehicle BAPS, Black American Princesses, that would be a good thing for the bottom line. Now, I have to tell you, when I was thinking of the quintessential terrible movie starring black female characters, you know, the first one that came to mind was Juana Man. Remember that one? With some lesser Wayans brothers. But wait a minute. Juana Man does not help gender inequality in movies because that was about a male playing a female. Then I thought about some other just terrible movies starring black women or featuring black women characters. And I thought of, you know, Big Mama's House or all the Medea movies. Wait a minute. These are all black guys playing black women. But when you think about white guys playing white women, you have Tootsie, you have Some Like It Hot, you have Mrs. Doubtfire, all right, those Mrs. Doubtfire is number 68 on the AFI, the American Film Institute's list of greatest comedies of all time. And Tootsie and Some Like It Hot were number two and number one. So maybe the if we could add a, uh, a cross-gender to the social change, media, and diversity title of that Annenberg School, why is it when a white guy wears a dress, it's AFI's number one comedy. When a black guy wears a dress, you get six Medea and 22 Big Mama's House movies. And you know, when you're just counting the named characters, don't the Ocean Eleven's movies and The Expendables and its sequel, doesn't those two movies alone just throw off everything? I guess that's why we have Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters is rewriting these statistics. On the show today, I spiel about the debate. I give advice, but first... In the realm of politics, he was a speechwriter for one of the most joked about political figures of the last 15 years. Remember Mark Sanford of South Carolina? Here was the guy who wrote his words, well, the words other than that Appalachian Trail thing. Former South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford is best known for one figure of speech, hiking the Appalachian Trail, which actually meant spending time with my mistress in Argentina. In a way, it is a shame that he is known for just that one figure of speech, though it was a contribution to the American lexicon. Then again, given his own devices, the phrases he might have come up with 
Oh my gosh, would they have been terrible. Barton Swaim has a list of them in his new book, The Speechwriter, A Brief Education in Politics, whereby Mr. Swaim talks about his tenure as the speechwriter for Mark Sanford, which largely meant rescuing Mark Sanford for some terrible blunders in speech. Hello, Barton Swaim. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. He likes these phrases like, given the fact that, or in which you operate, or speaks volumes. But why, psychologically, why did a professional communicator of sorts, former Governor Mark Sanford, like these terrible phrases? I don't know. And, and some of them aren't, some of them aren't terrible. They're just normal. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with the word fabulous, I guess, mm-hmm. or unique. But there's something about the fact that they came out of his own mind that he thought they were good. It somehow matched his brand. So he wanted every utterance, written or verbal, to sound like him. So how did you incorporate and under, you wrote these words down, these phrases down, and then how did you use them to make the speeches Sanford-esque, but also not terrible? (laughs) Well, I just sprinkled them like salt. (laughs) If you look at the list hard enough, as I did, you just figure out how to work them in. Once the op-ed or the press statement or, or whatever had enough of these things in it, it seemed to do the trick. At least I didn't get fired, which is sort of the only way I avoided that fate. <laughs> right. So you were assigned to write something in Mark Sanford's name for Chamber of Commerce magazine. By the way, I've <laughs> let my subscription lapse. So you write the phrase, in which you operate, you stare <laughs> at that phrase, And all of a sudden, you get a sentence like, this administration has always operated on the principle that government doesn't have all the answers. There you go. (laughs) I mean, it works, right? And you recently wrote an op-ed for the LA Times where you talked about the politicians' uh, use of to be clear. (laughs) Which, to me, I group with, uh, frankly, to be frank. Yeah, yeah. No no regular person has ever started a phrase like that. Like, doesn't it just invite the listener to say, wait a minute, what have you been up to this point? (laughs) Yeah, right. Are you not being honest with me? What's going on? Yeah. On the list was both and frankly. So it was never both this and that. It was always both this and frankly that. (laughs) So there was that. Right. So first, the stuff I don't really believe, but now we're going to get to the stuff I really believe. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So what was your, in your tenure there, and we'll get to how you uh, got the job, but what was your, you know, boys of Panduhak or, you know, your greatest achievement as a speechwriter? I don't know if I had any of those. Come on. There was, the the first thing I wrote for him was a talk to a, a military group. And that went extremely well, and he loved it, and he used it, and he used it after after that time, too. But that was only because I was brand new. And for whatever reason... Maybe other bosses are like this, but anyone who comes to work the first week or two, there's like this honeymoon period where everything you do is brilliant, especially compared to the work of other staffers. Right. So so you get hated by everyone except the boss for the first week or two, and then it immediately switches, and he hates you, but everyone else considers you kind of a friend. Yeah, that's when you get uh, kissed into the club. And I think it's probably because he wants to show that he made a smart hire. Yeah, yeah. You're the bright, interesting new kid. But then it was amazing to me how how fast that turned around, almost like clockwork. Two weeks in or so, boom, it was over. So explain to me in 2007 when you get hired, where were you literarily, where were you politically, and how do you feel as a uh, South Carolinian vis-a-vis Mark Sanford? I had this brand new 
really fancy degree in English Lit. And like a lot of people with English Lit degrees, I had no job. A friend had gotten me a job just out of sheer mercy in the university library, putting labels on books. That was the literally the extent of my job. That's all I did. Well, that and looked for other jobs, you know, sent out resumes. And um, that wasn't going so well. In fact, it took uh, two, almost three years of doing that. And finally, I got the idea of speechwriter. The job had always seemed sort of romantic to me. Sent Stanford and a few other politicians resumes, but especially I thought his was a good idea because I had seen things he had written and they were horrible. (laughs) And he seemed interesting. A lot of people hated him, which I've always kind of liked politicians that a lot of people hate. So I gave it a shot, and I did that at just the right time because he had just fired his then-speechwriter, which should have been assigned to me. Maybe he was weirder than I thought. Mm-hmm. I showed up not really knowing anything about state politics, especially. But that wasn't a problem, because when you're a writer, you know, writers are people who, who are really good at pretending like they know a lot when they don't. So it was fine. The book is not just about then-Governor Sanford's inadequacies as a communicator. Obviously, the debacle with his mistress uh, is what he came to be known for, though he's a currently serving member of Congress, so he's rebounded. But what strengths does he actually have as a politician? One thing is he's not afraid to make big enemies. At least in my experience, almost every politician is okay with making some enemies. But they tend to pick very small enemies who can't hurt them very much. And the thing I liked about about Sanford was that he just didn't care who he act off. Now some people don't some people don't like that in a politician because they think it means a person is never going to get anything done. I don't know if it's a dispositional thing or maybe an aesthetic thing, but I just like someone who just doesn't care. And he <laughs> he does not care who hates him. Now, he's smart enough to know, he's smart enough to turn that into a, a political asset, and he's not stupid about it. He, he's smart enough to know that if you want to go far in politics, you're going to have to make the right enemies. And he was, he was just really good at that. It was like an art form with him. Who were his smartest um, enemies? Well, the entire GOP establishment <laughs> in South Carolina, which is basically South Carolina politics, hated him. We're seeing that in a guy without a speechwriter right now, Trump. He's doing pretty much the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what about interpersonally? Because whenever I hear about people like that big, larger-than-life people, oftentimes really successful politicians who we might assume that they're unpleasant in real life, they have excellent interpersonal skills. You do not paint this picture with uh, Mr. Samford. Weirdly, he's very charming with members of the public who just meet him, you know, on the street or at a fundraiser or whatever. Uh, He's just very good at it. Now, a lot of people think that he's really weird who spent, you know, 15, 20 minutes or more with him. Mm -hmm. So at some point, the weirdness takes over. He's not a warm guy. And to his family, at least in my experience, to his sons, I didn't know much about his relationship with his wife, nor did I want to. From what I could see, he was very warm and and um, close with his his four sons but to anyone who who works for him he's a beast Mm. Um, and everyone in South Carolina knows this some people have been surprised by 
some of the things that I wrote in South Carolina. But most people, even people who've not known him that well, but known him somewhat, could sort of see it. There's a weirdness about him, an, an angularity. Yeah. Like, for instance, he has weird attitudes towards dry cleaning. <laughs> he doesn't use it. Yeah, it's the cheapness. Yeah. The cheapness is, a, is legendary, but it's real. But he turns that into an asset on the stump, you know? I'm going to save you money because look how cheap I am in real life. Yeah. In fact, and I'm he, wearing I a shirt his... with a stain right now. <laughs> it's pretty nasty. So you took the job. You are a Republican. You're generally conservative by nature, I take it. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of President Obama's ability to uh, communicate and communicate effectively? I tend to think that his speeches, when they're not read in his, in his wonderful baritone, but instead just read by you on, on the page, mm-hmm. I, I think they're really boring. Yeah. There's no f- phrase to remember, uh, which is sort of similar to Bill Clinton, although they're very different speaking styles. Both men's speeches are kind of boring when you read them. And weirdly enough, and it's maybe just a ideological bias on my part, I'm willing to accept that. But weirdly enough, George W. Bush's speeches, although they're painful to listen to sometimes because of mispronunciations and so forth, they read really well. And you can sort of figure out what the main point is by just looking for the rhetorical flourish, which is the way a speech should work. Right. But the odd thing is, I think you're complimenting his speechwriters because yeah. David Frum wrote Axis of Evil. Precisely. That's a phrase that will probably last longer than an Obama phrase from a speech. Although right. Obama's such a great writer. We know he's a good writer if he really did write his memoirs. I have no reason to think he didn't. You know he has a facility with words. So maybe, I don't know, maybe there's something going on where he doesn't need mm-hmm. flourishes for better, for worse. You know, he's probably so convinced that his policies are correct that he thinks he doesn't need them, but sometimes they <laughs> yeah. help. It does raise the question of what's the role of a speechwriter, what's a good role. Mm-hmm. And I do think that, that Bush at least had, you know, he was aware that he's not a wordsmith. And so he used really good speechwriters really effectively. Um, whereas a guy like Sanford would, whatever my abilities or the, the abilities of others on the staff were, he would not (laughs) use the material that anyone gave to him. Basically, they were just there to save time by coming up with the phrases that he would have come up with if he had had the time. Maybe you're getting at some version of leadership ability in that Mm -hmm. Bush knew what his weaknesses were. And I think he oversold the whole, I'll I'll surround myself with smart people. I mean, at Mm -hmm. some point, you're giving away aspects of the presidency that you need to own, as opposed to having, you know, Dick Cheney do so much in foreign policy. That aside, he probably was a good delegator. And every bit of evidence shows that Mark Sanford, not only uh, towards you, the speechwriter, but towards everyone else, was a bad delegator. And just by any objective measure, not a good leader. No. You know, there was always talk about him running for president, and I'm sure that was in his mind somewhere, although I never heard it explicitly. But I, he would have been a terrible president. You know, there, there's rumors about, or or it's it's legend at least, that Jimmy Carter, you know, wanted to have the, the schedule for the White House tennis courts in his in his possession. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true or not, but that, that would have been Mark Sanford, you know thinking that he can do everyone's job better than they can, and so actually trying to do it. 
In your time in South Carolina politics, did you see people who were elected officials who you were really impressed by? I mean, most of the book gets its humor from your interactions with the governor and some of the people who were just out to lunch, some greater characters. But was there was there anything to uh, take solace in elected officials who were really doing a laudable job? I've been um, gently criticized by a few friends for the way I ended my book on a skeptical note about all politicians. And I didn't I didn't do the whole writerly nuanced thing of saying mostly when I, and almost all and things like, no, I just said all. There are a couple of politicians in South Carolina that I like and think are interesting, but they're way to the left. So ideologically, I couldn't possibly work for them. So yeah, I'm, I'm scratching my head here. <laughs> the ones you like, are they, are they better communicators? They are. They, I can't believe I'm, I'm saying this. Um, you tricked me into this. They just seem to have a better capacity to communicate and run their offices without a lot of stupid things coming out. I don't know. They're not that they're they're not governor yet, so uh, we'll see. The Speechwriter: A Brief Education in Politics by Barton Swaim. Thank you, Barton. Thank you. And now, not just a new podcast offering, but what I'm going to say, a mitzvah for you to listen to. Hi, I'm Mark Oppenheimer, the host of Unorthodox, a new podcast from Tablet Magazine. Each week, Unorthodox dissects the news of the Jews with conviction and with wit. But, you know, we're not just for Jews. We also invite in a guest non-Jew to ask us questions and even occasionally offer some constructive criticism of the chosen people. Immediately off the top of my head, you guys have way too many holidays. You really do need to edit the list down. You can listen to Unorthodox each week on iTunes.com slash Panoply or at TabletMag.com. It's been over two weeks since the announcement of a deal between Iran and the United States, well, more than the United States, group of countries that would limit Iran's nuclear capability for the foreseeable future. In that time, there have been a lot of bad arguments against that deal, some good arguments for the deal. But what I want to do now is focus on what I think are the best, the least crazy, the most reasonable arguments that have been put forth by people with a standing to put forth good arguments. And joining me now is Dr. Jeffrey Lewis. He is the founding publisher of armscontrolwonk.com. He's got the best weekly arms control podcast that you could ever hope to listen to. And he's affiliated with Stanford. He's affiliated with the uh, James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies at Monterey. A lot of good academic attributes. Hello, Dr. Lewis. How are you? Hey, man, it's great to be here. So first I want to uh, ask you about, let's go to Jeff Flake. He is a senator from Arizona, and he was quite respectful in his questioning. He even said, I have no agenda. I just want some questions answered. And what he was asking about is sanctions. He wondered if because of this deal, could the U.S. reimpose sanctions for something other than cheating on a nuclear deal? In other words, what if Iran's terrorism ambitions start running wild? Would this deal preclude putting sanctions on? I know you're an arms control guy and not a sanctions guy, but I thought that was his best question in the hearings. What do you say about that? It's complicated because the agreement does say that you can't reimpose 
sanctions. So at some level, you can't just take all the sanctions that we're lifting as part of the deal and reimpose them under a a different name. Mm -hmm. But there are all of these dispute resolution procedures. And if the Iranians did something horrible, uh, you know, like uh, what was that, that terrible terrorist attack that they probably sponsored in Argentina, I think the United States certainly could impose those sanctions. And my guess is that in that context, I don't think that would be a problem. Let's go to Isaac Herzog, who is the who ran for essentially prime minister. It's a parliamentary system, so you don't run for this uh, the position specifically. But he was the main candidate in opposition of Bibi Netanyahu in Israel. And one of his main arguments is whatever this does for breakout time, it just makes the Iranians so flush with cash it will endanger the lives of Israelis just because Iran will be causing havoc in other non-nuclear areas. Again, this isn't necessarily a nuclear arms control question. But what do you say to that critique? But you know what? That's a Washington question. And I haven't been able to swear yet. And you gave me the opportunity to do it. Like politicians are ass clowns. They are only (laughs) interested in what is going to help them get elected. And Herzog wants to be prime minister. And so this is an opportunity for him to run to the right of Netanyahu to show to the Israeli electorate that he is really tough. And, you know, my guess is that people in Israel who support this deal just kind of roll their eyes because, you know, they know exactly what it is, which is a leftist politician trying to look really tough. My guess is if he were actually the prime minister, uh, we would see a very different thing coming from him. But, you know, like political rhetoric, I, I just... I don't take it all that seriously. Okay, but what about the, so let's separate it from the person, that this will make the Iranians yeah. flush, thereby the Hezbollah flush, thereby the yeah. the missiles that were being shot down by Iron yeah. Dome, there'll be twice as many of them and twice as potent. Yeah. Like a lot of arguments, it's mostly false, but kind of built on a kernel of truth. So okay. one thing is, you know, sometimes you hear this $100 billion to $300 billion number, like that money is going to flow in. And it turns out like that's not true at all. The Iranians are allowed to sell oil, And so they have money in accounts, and those accounts are restricted, so they can only use those funds for certain things. And this deal would remove those restrictions. And so what some people are saying is the Iranians will take all of their oil sale money and pour it into Hezbollah. This is kind of no evidence that they're going to do that. You know, they actually have enough money to spend on those things if they want to. But kind of if you step back and kind of look at it from the 10,000-foot view, I think you have to ask – what is more scary? Is it the Iranian economy 10 years ago before sanctions growing at that rate? Or is it a cratered Iranian economy that looks like North Korea, but with nuclear weapons? And to me, because you know I deal with a ton of North Korea stuff, there is just no question that as bad as a rich Iran might be, a broke nuclear armed Iran would be 10 times worse. I think there are two fundamental critiques. And the question I had is, I do think the United States, the world gains this from the deal. I think they gain an extended breakout time. And that was the only criteria that Obama, at least in his initial remarks, sold the deal to the public. We go from three months to maybe a year in breakout time. That's a good thing. However, I would judge that against an enriched Iran, how much mayhem they could cause their neighbors. Fine. Let's put that aside. I think there's another big critique of the deal. And I'll let Elliot Engel, who's uh, from the Bronx, Democrat, the top Democrat on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He looks at the fact that this deal is a 15-year deal. And he says, I have a fundamental concern that 15 years from now, Iran will essentially be off the hook. The idea is that Whatever goes on with this deal, no matter if you think it really will extend the breakout time and Iran won't cause everyone in their neighborhood to go up in flames, with the turn of a key, just a couple months, Iran's most certainly going to have a nuclear weapon in 15 years. What do you say to that? Uh, I say that is actually a reasonable thing to worry about. 
but it's why I want to deal, which is to say they're at that point now. They have enough capability that they can do this at the turn of a key. And while we do have the sanctions regime in place, there's no indication that that sanctions regime is going to last forever. And so if you just play out the scenario of, of having no deal, I think what you see is the sanction regime collapses and that they're in this position. So to me, it is totally valuable to kick the can down the road. But that's what you're doing, right? You're trying to manage this problem. You know, there's nothing in this deal that is going to suddenly turn the government in Tehran into something that's likable because that's not going to happen. And there's nothing in this deal that is going to solve what I think are really tough regional security problems that the administration has not done enough to deal with. But from my perspective, in terms of trying to push them to do more in a regional security situation, a major thing that they've got to do is at least push the threat of a nuclear armed Iran off into the distance. And then that buys us time to do all this other stuff we got to do. But, you know, it's like anything in life. You can buy yourself time and you can squander it. All right. Dr. Jeffrey Lewis, founding publisher of the armscontrolwonk.com blog, network, series of networks, the gawker of arms control, let's call it. He also does the Arms Control Wonk podcast. Thank you. You are awesome. Thanks. And now the spiel, how to dump on Trump. So in this space, I have given thoroughly unsought after, certainly not to be followed political advice to unelectable candidates. It's sort of my thing. Who could forget my spiel about how Martin O'Malley should have answered the Black Lives Matter heckle? That was a good one. And I'd like to think, had the gist been around in 1992, I could have given Dick Gephardt some salient advice that he wouldn't have taken and that also wouldn't have mattered because he decided not to run anyway. And even if he ran, he wouldn't have been elected. But again, this is my thing. So now I have advice for the last Republican on the stage in tonight's debate. I thought of this advice a couple of weeks ago. I didn't know who the last Republican would be, but I knew the last Republican would be 10th out of a field of 16. Therefore, the last Republican would be pretty desperate, would be needing to do something to make his name or her name, but it's really going to be his name because Carly Fiorina was never going to get into this debate. It's got to be someone, it had to be someone who wasn't afraid to throw a punch. It needed to be someone who wouldn't mind of being thought of as brash. And then they named the field and the last Republican was Chris Christie. So check, 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 check. Chris Christie should say what I'm about to say. Chris Christie should say it because it will help Chris Christie, but I also think it will help Republicanism, and hell yeah, I think it will help America. And the main piece of advice that I would give is tear apart Donald Trump. Do it factually, but do it with passion and do it in a way that no one will ever forget. So you need the opening. So it doesn't have to be Christie if Ben Carson wants to take the advice, if Kasich wants to take the advice. He's a jabber, but I think maybe he has another he has another motivation in these debates, maybe getting named vice president. So I don't know, vice president to a Trump candidacy, would he want that? But one of these guys, if they're not afraid to mix it up, you get a question like, what do you think America needs? And then you could say, right now they need to hear this. Or you get a question like the classic, what mistakes have you made? And then you could say, one mistake we've all made is not saying something like this earlier. Or a question could be, what are your greatest accomplishments? Greatest, I don't know. But I do have some accomplishments. Not make-believe reality TV accomplishments. And you know who has that? The guy who's the front runner right now. So this is what another candidate should say about Trump. You pivot off whatever question you get, and you get into this. I would just like everyone to know, for the record, 
that I've never given money to Hillary Rodham Clinton. It's because I have something called values. I am against abortion. I did not conveniently become against abortion when I turned about 60 or when I had a conversation that for the first time ever made me think about the moral question of our time. No, I thought about it earlier than the couple months before I decided to run for president. Why? Because I have values. I believe politics should be a life spent trying to fight for the right causes, not figuring out what the right cause is once you start running for president and explaining your endorsement of all the wrong causes along the way as I was just trying to make money as a businessman. Like in 1999, I didn't tell Larry King, quote, I believe in universal health care. In 2000, I never did an interview where I said I would put forth a comprehensive health care program and fund it with an increase in corporate taxes. And that same year, I never asserted the Canadian plan helps Canadians live longer and healthier than America. We need as a nation to re-examine the single payer plan. I never said that stuff because I have values and I'm not explaining away that stuff today by saying, oh, I was just trying to make money back then. You know what else I didn't do? I never had an employee, a top advisor, who said there's no such thing as raping a woman if you're married to her. And the, the guy didn't say this in 1915. He said this in 2015. And if we say things like this, it's not just that we will never get a woman to vote for us. It's that it is the morally wrong thing to say. And was that person fired? No, that person works at a different part of Mr. Trump's money-making organization. I'm here to say that your front runner is not a Republican. He is not a serious person and he is not a good person. I'm flawed. Jeb's flawed, Marco, Rick, Scott, they're all flawed. But you know what we are? We're all Republicans, and none of us are vile loudmouths who've never written a law, vetoed a law, or enforced a law. None of us would make you want to vomit all over yourself every day if we were in the White House, and that's why you should vote for any of us before you elect a certain vile excuse for a leader. Now, I know, Mr. Trump, you get 30 seconds for a rebuttal, but if your rebuttal starts with anything other than, I'm sorry and I was wrong, it's not worth listening to. All right, that statement, it's harsh. It won't win the election for whoever says it, but it will be the most memorable thing that he ever says in politics. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi produces The Gist, but she's also the night manager of the Bennigans. Joel Meyer, just managing producer, eats at Arby's. Arby's, for when your GI tract and you are no longer on speaking terms. Andy Bowers is executive producer of The Gist's favorite impression, Charlie Wrangle, who sounds a little like this. The Gist, here it is, your moment of never again. Thanks for listening.